Okay, morning everybody. Morning. Right, um, I don't think, no notices. Then ready to welcome Mark Alcom, who's visiting from Heston Baptist. Over to Mark then. Thank you very much. Good morning. Nice to see you all. Well, I don't know what you've been up to recently, but I tell you what I've been up to. I've been partying. My life seems to be full of parties. Most recently, a retirement party, and a 70th birthday party, and a wedding party. Earlier this year, there's been church anniversaries or birthday parties, and so on. There's all sorts of parties. I don't know, do you like parties? Just show me a hand if you like a party. Excellent. And a party usually begins with an invite. It may come through the email, it may come through word of mouth, it may drop through your letterbox, uh, you may get a telephone call, they say, we've got a party, will you come? Do you want to come? Tell us whether you're coming or not. And sometimes it uses those funny letters, RSVP, which the French... Uh, Respondez s'il vous plaît means tell us whether you're coming, give us an answer. And you know, when we come to church, it's as if God says to us, there's an invitation to you, give us an answer. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are carrying heavy loads, people who are tired of all the problems and difficulties, people with worries and anxieties and troubles and cares, Come to me, and I will give you rest. So there's the invitation that if we respond to that, we can come to God, and he will do something new and different in our lives. We're going to remain seated and sing our first song, because we're going to sing it through a couple of times, quite quietly, and it says, As we're gathered, Jesus is here. And Psalm 100 in the Bible says this, Everyone shout praises to the Lord with joy. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come to him with songs of thanksgiving. For I want you to know that the Lord is God. He made us and we belong to him. We are his people. We are like the sheep belonging to his flock. Give thanks as you enter the doors of his house. Give praise as you come inside. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good. His faithful love continues forever, and it will last for all time to come. We're encouraged to come and to give thanks and to give praise. So let's stand and sing another song now. We're going to sing, Be still, for the presence of the Lord, the Holy One, is here. Now, can anybody tell me what this is? It's very tiny, and it belongs to Auntie Mary. What do you think it is? A what? No, it's not a puppet. Let me take it closer to you so you can have a look. Do you know what this is called? It is a thimble, yes. Anybody know what a thimble is? What do you do with a thimble? Sorry? An ornament. an ornament. Yeah, yeah, okay. You can get really posh china ones. I wasn't bringing a china, I got a plastic one, all right? 
Um, so let one of the ladies tell us what you do with a thimble. Yeah, tell us what you do with a thimble, because some of them don't know. When you're sewing and you need to push your needle through the fabric, you can use that so you don't hurt your finger. So the needle doesn't go in your finger, you put it on that, yes. Anybody know? It protects it. It does indeed. Excellent. Anybody know what game you play with a thimble? Hunt the thimble. Put your hand up if you've ever played Hunt the Thimble. Put your hand up if you've never played Hunt the Thimble. Ah, right. Well, now, this is not a difficult game. Basically, I hide it and you have to find it. So what I'm going to do is say that if you're playing Hunt the Thimble this morning, would you like to stand up? Anybody want to play Hunt the Thimble? Stand up. And then face the back of the church whilst I hide the thimble. Okay. Now, anybody who wants to come and play, come and find the thimble. Hey, you've done it. That was easy, wasn't it? Okay. Back to your seat and we'll do it again. Okay, face around so you can't see. And come and have another look. And I don't know whether you were cheating or not. Well done. Thank you very much. Brilliant. And one last go. Okay, I trust that you're facing around and not watching. Right, you can come and have a look now. It's not on me, no. Nor is it on the platform. Ah, oh, well done. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> now, I put the thimble in places that weren't too difficult. I could have thought of some really difficult places, but then we'd have been all morning hunting the thimble, and maybe you want to do a bit more in church than just play hunt the thimble. Um, but I thought that looking for a thimble can sometimes be like looking for God. Because people say to me, where is God? How do I find God? And it's not always easy to find God. Sometimes you have to really search to find God. And if you said to me, where might I look to find God? I've got some suggestions for you, and they're all in pictures. So here's one place you might find God if we have the first picture. Do you know where that is? It's here, right. So if you're looking for God, you may well find God here in this place. But you may want to look in other places for God as well. So the second picture. 
Does anybody know the name of that mountain? That mountain is called Mount Cook. It's in New Zealand. I had a wonderful privilege of being there earlier this year. And you know, sometimes when you look at mountains and the splendor of nature, you think, wow, God is a fantastic creator. So sometimes if you want to find God, you need to get away from all the noise and find somewhere that's absolutely beautiful, and you'll find in the beauty the presence of God. Or somewhere else you might find God. Anybody know what's happening in that picture? It's in a place called Haiti. It is the hurricane. It's one man carrying a disabled person, I think, across the river to safety. Terrible things happened in that hurricane, as happened all the time. And you know, Jesus says that when we help people who are in terrible need, it's as if we're helping Jesus himself because he is there in those desperate situations. It might look as if everything's really bad and horrible and awful, but somehow God is there. And when we help the person in need, in hungry, poverty, we can discover the presence of God in them. Next picture. That is simple. What are those children doing, do you think? Sorry? What did you say? Ballet. Um, it's not quite ballet. Have another guess what they might be doing. Where are they, do you think? They're in a church. What might children be doing in a church? Praying? Yes, they might be praying. What else might they be doing? Well, these kids are singing. Okay, simple as that. They're singing. They're singing praises to God. And when we read the Bible, it says, when we're singing our praises to God, God's there. God lives in that. You'll find God in people who praise him and love him. Next picture. Children's Bible. Do you know lots of people have found God by reading the Bible, by reading some of the stories of things that God has done, by reading about Jesus. People have found the presence and the love of God. Next one. I would say that's a group of friends. I don't know what they're doing. They're reading a book together or something. And you know, sometimes you can find God through other people in your friends. Your friends might do or say something and they're being used by God to help you at that moment. So sometimes God is not miles away out there, he's through your friends, speaking to you, helping you, loving you. Look for God in your friends. Next one. Now we come back to what you were saying earlier. These children are praying. And it's when we pray we might discover the presence of God. When we come with perhaps a a worry or a trouble or a need and we pray to God, there God is present with us as we pray. Next one. Now that is looking at the sky at night. Uh, You know what it's like when you go out and everything's dark and you just look at the stars? That's actually looking at the Milky Way, which is an incredible sight. And you look up at the sky and it says in the Bible that the sky reveals the glory of God. That you can see God in the world around. You can see God in a brilliant starlit sky. Next one. 
surprise. Do you know, God sometimes surprises us. He doesn't come in the ordinary places. We find him in places that are really surprising, really unusual. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that was a real surprise. People wouldn't have thought that God would be in a dirty stable, but he was. And God surprises us. So when you're looking for God, you'll find him in strange and surprising places. And finally, the the place we find God most clearly and most readily is in Jesus and in the fact that he died on the cross for us. So in the life that Jesus lived and the death that he died, we find God and God's love and God's message and God's truth. So we do have to look for God sometimes. It's a little bit like looking for a thimble or playing hide-and-seek. But God will be found, and God will be found in all kinds of places. Where is God? What is there? Is there? He's everywhere, and we can find him if we look for him. We're going to sing a song, a song that says, Father God, I wonder how I managed to exist without the knowledge of your parenthood and your loving care. When you found God, you'll be glad to sing his praises. And now Caroline, my wife, is going to read our reading for this morning uh, as you continue a series looking at people Jesus has met. I'm reading from John chapter 4, and I'm reading from the Good News Bible, and it's entitled, Jesus and the Samaritan Woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was winning and baptizing more disciples than John. Actually, Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, only his disciples did. So when Jesus heard what was being said, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. On his way there, he had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar, which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The woman answered, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. Jesus answered, If only you knew what God gives and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you life-giving water. Sir, the woman said, you haven't got a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? If it was our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well. He and his sons and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Jesus answered, Whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him 
will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring which will provide him with life-giving water and will give him eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me that water, then I will never be thirsty again, nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband, Jesus told her, and come back. I haven't got a husband, she answered. Jesus replied, You are right when you say you haven't got a husband. You have been married to five men, and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. I see you are a prophet, sir, the woman said. My Samaritan ancestors worship God on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. And Jesus said, Believe me, woman, the time will come when women will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship, but we Jews know whom we worship, because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming and is already here when the power of God's Spirit People will worship the Father as he really is, offering him the true worship that he wants. God is spirit, and only by the power of his spirit can people worship him as he really is. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah will come, and when he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said, I am him and I am talking I who am talking with you If you're reading a book watching a program a drama or a series on television even one of the soaps There is often a critical moment, a moment when a decision is made and a certain path is taken, a moment when a choice is made. And you may not realise it at the time, but that critical moment defines the rest of the story and the rest of what happens afterwards. You see it in the lives of politicians, a moment that will make or break their career. You see it so often in sport, a moment's indiscretion. It can be drugs, it can be cheating, it can be greed, and it will lead to a lifetime of regret. You hear it in what people say, if only I hadn't, and then fill in the dots. Well, in the Old Testament, we read about a critical moment in the story of a very young Jewish nation. The people had been insistent that they wanted to have a king like all the other countries around them. They all had a king. And the spiritual leaders had been hesitant. Kings so often abused power and made things worse. But eventually the spiritual leaders accepted the popular verdict. 
You might say they grudgingly gave in to the result of the referendum. And they were given a king, King Saul, a good king. He was liked, he was respected, he won battles, but not for long. Mental and emotional instability made him a dangerous man. He made poor decisions, he made irrational decisions. The spiritual leaders began to realise how right they were when they gave a health warning to having a king. And then disobedience to God made things worse. Greed set in, hunger for power. People began to see what a terrible mistake they'd made, but it was too late. The deed had been done, they could not unking him. Until the prophet Samuel went out to find a successor, a new king. And he was directed to go to a man called Jesse in Bethlehem and to choose one of his sons as a future king to replace King Saul. There were eight sons, as you might remember, but only seven of them were brought to be interviewed. Samuel looked at sons number one and two, and they were tall, they were handsome, they looked imposing, and he could see them as great leaders. He could see them as a man who would lead his troops into battle. And then a voice started speaking in his head, a reminder of something very profound. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Outwardly, these sons seem to have everything going for them. But in, inside, in the heart, they looked rather empty. So with that mantra in his mind, Samuel, having looked at all seven sons, said to the father, well, is that all? Jesse said, yes, except for the youngest. We didn't think he's suitable, so he's out looking after sheep. Fetch him, says Samuel. And when Samuel saw him, he saw something in his heart. Not outward greatness, but inner greatness. Inner strength, inner tenacity, inner goodness. And so, as you might remember the story, David was anointed to be king. And he became the best king that Israel ever had. And now I want you to fast forward a thousand years. And find Jesus sitting by the side of a well, deep in conversation. And find the same principle at work. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. If I'd been an observer of that scene, Jesus talking to the woman by the well, what would I have seen? Let me tell you what I would have seen. First of all, I'd have seen that Jesus was talking to a woman. In the Greek world, a woman was not allowed to leave the house unless she was accompanied by a trustworthy male escort. A wife was not permitted to eat with or interact with male guests in her husband's house. Men kept their wives under lock and key and women had the social uh, status of a slave. Girls were not allowed to go to school. When they grew up, they were not allowed to speak in public. And women were inferior to men. That was the viewpoint. In the Roman world, it wasn't very much different. The status of Roman women was very low. 
Roman law put a woman under the complete, absolute control of a husband who owned her and all her possessions. He could divorce her if she went out in public without a veil. He had the power of life and death over his wife. And Jewish women didn't fare much better. They were barred from public speaking. Synagogue worship was segregated. Women's voices were never allowed to be heard. It's like the status of many women in Islamic countries today, like in Saudi Arabia, where women cannot drive a car, where a man has a right to beat his wife or sexually betray her and then defends his action by some interpretation of a verse in the Quran. Yes, I would have seen a woman. And I would have thought that this was unlikely, that it was irregular, that it was ill-advised, It was not the sort of thing a man of God would do, sit down and have a public discussion with a woman. But Jesus didn't see a woman. Of course he knew her gender. But in a sense he was gender blind because she was a person and he treated all people the same. I don't think Jesus set out with a feminist agenda from the way we would understand it. He wasn't on a crusade to emancipate women. He wasn't being politically subversive. He just saw her as a person. And he didn't treat her as other men would have treated her. He accepted her as she was. Because he looked not at the external appearance and image. He looked at the heart. So if it mean me, I'd have seen her as a woman. And then, secondly, I'd have seen that she was a Samaritan. Now, this woman was very aware of the racial issue. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Look, we can't even share the same drinking cups. So how on earth can you talk about uh, me giving you a drink? Now, again, Jesus knew the racial issue. He was in Samaria. He had chosen deliberately to go there. He knew the woman was a local woman, but he saw beyond her race. Do you know the enmity between Jews and Samaritans went back over 500 years? The Samaritans were the remnants of the old northern kingdom of Israel, but they were racially and religiously intermarried and intermixed and impure, and devout Jews saw them as tainted. And enmity between Jew and Samaritan was huge. It reminds me a little bit of the enmity today between Shia and Sunni Muslims. We find it hard to understand why people of the (coughs) same religion, with some of the same history, how they can be so at each other's throats. Well, Jesus knew the story. He knew the history of Jews and Samaritans. But he chose not to dwell on it, not to look at it, for it not to be a factor at all in their interaction. Jesus looked beyond this, for he saw not a Samaritan, because he didn't look at the outward appearance. He saw the heart. So if it was me, I'd have said it was a woman. I'd have said she was a Samaritan. And thirdly, I'd have said she's a woman of loose morals. And again, Jesus saw that, of course. He said, get your husband. She said, I haven't got a husband. He said, I know you've had five, and now you're on to number six. Jesus knew the facts. 
but he didn't moralize. He didn't preach at her. He didn't quote the Ten Commandments to her. He saw beyond the superficiality of her morals to something far deeper. He didn't take very much notice of the symptoms because he came to deal with the root cause. You know, if you and I have been in church for a long time, we're likely to get hung up on loose morals. We can't see beyond them. It becomes a barrier. It stops of going any further. We write people off because of their indiscretion or their inability to control their passions. Not for Jesus. He was not obsessed by her sexual behaviour. That wasn't what he came to talk about. He came to talk about something deep in her heart. About her longing for something more and spiritual. The loose morals were simply external symptoms and he came to deal with an inner disease. So if I'd seen a woman, a Samaritan, someone with loose morals, Jesus looked beyond all those. So what did Jesus see? Well, first of all, he saw her deep spiritual need. He started making a thing by talking about life-giving water. Now, to begin with, the, the conversation was all about mechanics, really. Jews and Samaritans drinking from the same cup. How can you get water? The, the well is deep. You haven't got a rope. You haven't got a bucket. This is Jacob's well and all that kind of talk. But then the penny dropped. Jesus was talking about something that resonated deep inside this woman. Was it hope? Was it love? Maybe, maybe it was the cleansing of forgiveness. Was it that this woman started to feel valued, precious? Was there something in what Jesus said that began to make life really worth living? And she wanted it. She was reaching out for it. Whatever it was, she wanted it. Do you know, before I was a Christian as a teenager, I was aware of people who were Christians and they just had got something that I hadn't got. And I couldn't put my finger on it to say exactly what that something was, but they'd got something. And I wanted to have that something. And that's what this woman saw. Jesus had got something and she wanted it. Jesus saw that deep, spiritual need. He looked beyond the external and saw what was in her heart. He also saw, secondly, that she had a wrong understanding of faith. This woman was beginning to see that Jesus was no ordinary man. He knew her life story. He must be a prophet. But then, instead of asking Jesus to touch her and change her and release her and bless her, she went straight to the religious question of the day. What's the right church to go to? Where should we worship? And Samaritans say that God is best worshipped on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And they could prove it with chapters and verses out of their scriptures. And the Jews said that God should be worshipped on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And they'd got chapters and verses they could quote as well. That was the big question more than any other. Who's right? Who's wrong? Where do we worship? And Jesus says, look, you've misunderstood what it's about. It's actually not about which mountain at all. That is irrelevant. Because worship comes out of the heart. 
And when God touches you by his spirit, worship will begin to flow from inside you. God won't worry about where you are doing this worship. When you worship in spirit and in truth, there is true worship. And that's what really matters. And Jesus saw she got into a real mess about religion. It got nothing to do with which is the right place and should I do this or should I do that. It was about God touching her heart and she'd never seen it. And the third thing that Jesus saw was that this woman was actually longing for the Messiah. She knew that her faith promised her a real hope. That one day there would be a saviour, a a deliverer, a messiah, and that person would come. And she was waiting for it. She knew it would be a game changer. When the messiah comes, everything will be different. Which is why Jesus was gently able to lead her to that understanding by saying, it's me. Me, the one who's talking to you. I am your messiah. And then if you wonder, what is going to happen next? The spell is broken because the disciples arrive back. And they've been shopping. And they're noisy. And they've got lunch. And they've got bags of food. And they say, it's time for lunch. It's time for food. Anyway, what are you doing talking to a woman? And the woman leaves Jesus at that point. She leaves in a hurry. She actually leaves her water pot behind. Still processing what Jesus had said and what she'd heard in that conversation. She couldn't take it all in, of course. She went to her friends. She talked with them. Could this be the man? Come and see. Come and see the Messiah. He's told me all I've done. He's told me my life story. And because of that woman, many in that place became believers and followers of Jesus. Now, I think there's one question you need to ask at the end of every sermon. And by the way, end of sermon is a nice thing to say, isn't it? The question is, so what? Does it make any difference? Does it affect me, the way I live my life? Will it be relevant tomorrow, wherever I am? So let's come back to where we started. Jesus did not concentrate on what was on the outside, but he saw the heart of the matter. He saw into the heart. When you and I look on the outside, we tend to be judgmental. And sadly, Christians can be very judgmental. We all too readily see people's mistakes. We judge people for their poverty, for their homelessness. We judge them according to their looks, the way they speak, the language they use. We judge them by the things we disapprove of. If we don't like body piercings and they've got them, we judge them because of it. We're very good at seeing the outside trouble is, the outside doesn't really matter. As good as we are at seeing the outside, we are poor at seeing the inside, the hidden, the inner world, the spiritual. We don't discern the spiritual need because our focus is somewhere else. We don't discern that some people have a false view of what faith and belief is all about. And they say they don't believe. And if you ask them what it is they don't believe, you might want to say, well, no wonder, I don't believe that either. Sometimes, you know, you can't help people by talking to them. They won't listen to talk. You have to help them by your life. 
They'll see what faith is by reading your life. They won't hear it in your words. And sometimes we don't see the longing that people have got for something different, for something better, for some new activity of God, for some new hope. They may not look it, may not put it in this way, but they're looking for Messiah, for something new. These are the people we can talk with and work with and talk to and befriend and pray for. They may be different to us. They may have a different background and culture to us. They may not have got all their morality issues sorted out. But if there's an inner sense of need, if there's a willingness to rethink what faith is about, if they genuinely long for God to come and do something, then there is hope. Look not at the outside, but on the inside. And when people encounter Jesus, their lives will change. And the lives of their friends will change too, because they'll be caught up what's happening and so the story of the anointing of David so long before the story of Jesus and the woman at the well point us to the same truth don't look at what's on the outside look at what is on the inside for that's how God looks that's how God in Jesus looks and that's how God wants us to be And so may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with us and with all those we love wherever they are, now and forevermore. Amen.